I haven't had a chance to meet you, um, one thing that I would say before we start this is um, until the snow flies, it's still summer at the vineyard. So we have yet to have snow, which means it is still summertime. So we are going to hold on to that as long as we can. I'd also mention on November 20th, we have our Christmas decorating party. And so, uh, you know, for the sake of the, the ranchers and farmers in our congregation, I hope that I'm not wearing shorts um, then, uh, because then uh, that'd be a long time to wait for our first snow. But until the first snow falls, we don't have to wear pants at the vineyard. So there we go. Um, Well, yeah, you, you should have to wear something, but we're not a legalist church, so, you know, you can decide what that something is. That's <laughs> so, um, all right, you know, I, would, I have a few more comments to make before we pray, but I think after that, maybe we should just pray right now. So let's just pray real quick. Uh, Holy Spirit, would you make your presence known? Would you release the gifts of your spirit here? Would you speak to our hearts? Father, I pray as we, as we allow your word to come, I pray that we would see our place in your word. I pray that when we read scripture, we could see that when you spoke this scripture to life, we were on your mind. I pray that that reality would settle on our hearts now. And so, Father, would you be with us now as we turn to your word in Jesus' name. Amen. We are about halfway through the book of Ephesians, uh, this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. Um, some of the, the first generation of followers of Jesus were the original recipients of this letter. But it's also for us. We saw in the first three chapters, Paul talked about identity. He talked about, I mean, think about Paul talking about identity in the first generation of the church. And we see how big of an issue identity is today. We can see this connection of these issues that were being dealt with from the beginning, that, are, that are continue today. This letter speaks to us as much as it speaks to the church in Ephesus. Paul talked about identity in those first three chapters. He talked about moving from death to life. And then he got to the central theme of this letter, this, this message of unity. Now, today we move out of that section and we do it by way of a word that starts out chapter 4. That word is therefore. This word serves notice to the fact that, that God is as intentional as he is real. This word therefore. God is in, as intentional as he is real. One of the effective lies that we get from the enemy that comes to us by way of the culture is that there is randomness, meaninglessness, chaos as a lived reality while we just wait for the dirt nap to, to come and then we try to get as much as we can before we're seeing the daisies from the root side. This lie is effective when the horizon of the ministry, or when the horizon of the meaning of life is not far off. When that horizon isn't far away, it's easy to feel chaotic, like there's randomness, 
meaninglessness. When that horizon is not set far off, it's usually due to a focus on self and a focus on survival. When we are only focused on survival, making it, that horizon is really close. When we're focused on self, when we're focused on survival, the randomness, the chaos, feels like this is what reigns in the world as we know it. When we're able to move our gaze off of our own survival, when we can move our gaze off of our own ambition, when we can move it off of achievement, when we can move it off of comfort, we recognize that we are part of something real, we're part of something intentional, we're part of something that is immensely important. Our lives matter not because of what we can accomplish, but what we can accomplish for the mission that was planned before we existed and continues to unfold in our midst. Therefore is a word that demonstrates to us that our movement from death to life, occasioned by selection, adoption by the Lord God Almighty, finds us in the reality of identity as his chosen child. Together with other of his children, we form into the mechanism of his activity in his world. All of that leads us to this. So join me, if you would, in Ephesians chapter 4. Therefore, I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. Kind of getting a trend of only getting one verse deep before I need to talk again. So we'll just keep that rolling one more um, week. But calling. Often when we talk about calling from a cultural perspective, or when a group of people that gather in the name of the church but are really there for religious ritual that, you know, will cover uh, their desire to, to, to not submit to the living God, um, it's really more for self-empowerment rather than sacrificial service. Calling, when it's about self, is about ambition, not service. Calling that's about ambition, talent, and advancement are tied to measurements of materialism. And that is tied to secular culture. That's tied to what we see surrounding us. It's what we see with every advertisement, with every time, every time we turn on anything with a screen, we see calling tied to ambition, tied to talent, tied to advancement by a, a metric that really is rooted in materialism. There is something that I refer to uh, as cultural Christianity, which is, it's taken, cultural Christianity has taken the gospel and corrupted it into a self-help, self-empowerment deal that's not about the gospel as presented by Paul in the first three chapters. It's more about how to make my life more comfortable. The gospel Paul presents the gospel that he received from Jesus is a message of unity with God as the center of order. Now, from this perspective, the calling 
that Paul is presenting is not that calling that culture talks about that can be tied to metrics of materialism, that can be tied to, to ambition and comfort. What Paul is talking about is God's summoning of individuals and people to himself so that they will belong to him and serve him in his world. The calling of a believer, it might involve a specific place. It might involve a specific task. It might even involve a specific vocation for life. We see calling throughout Scripture, but when we see it in Scripture, it is always purposeful in the unfolding of the plan of the ministry of reconciliation. God calls individuals to belong to him and to serve him, and he does so by demonstrating his service to us and how he loves us. We see this in Isaiah 55, verse 1. Is anyone thirsty? Come and drink. Even if you have no money, come take your choice of wine or milk. It's all free. Jesus, in John chapter 7, says, John seven thirty seven says, On the last day, the climax of the festival, Jesus stood and shouted to the crowds, Anyone who is thirsty may come to me. And so we know that the first part of the calling identifies the fact that God is freely giving to us. Matthew chapter 9, 13 says, And then he added, Now go and learn the meaning of the scripture. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. For I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. In Acts chapter 2, verse 39, Luke wrote, This promise is to you, to your children, and to those far away. All have been called by the Lord our God. So what we're seeing is that that first there is a service that the Lord does for us, and from that service flows a calling that is for everyone. Uh, Paul wrote to Timothy in the second letter to Timothy, For God saved us and called us to live a holy life. He did this not because we deserved it, but because that was his plan from before the beginning of time. To show us his grace through Christ Jesus. All of our calling is tied to the fact that we have the free grace of Jesus. We can demonstrate with scripture that that all are called, but also scripture demonstrates a hard reality. Even though all are called, few will respond positively to God's calling. Jesus talked about this in a few places in Matthew chapter 22. Verse 14, he said, For many are called, but few are chosen. We see this illustrated in another teaching in the same chapter from Jesus, a teaching on the kingdom of heaven. When Jesus says the kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by a story of a king who prepared a great wedding feast for his son. When the banquet was ready, he sent his servants to notify those who were invited. But they all refused to come. So he sent other servants to tell them the feast has been prepared. The bulls and fattened cattle have been killed and everything is ready. Come to the banquet. But the guests he invited ignored them and went their own way. 
one to his farm and another to his business. Others seized his messengers and insulted them and killed them. The king was furious, and he sent out his army to destroy the murderers and burn their town. And he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, and the guests I invited aren't worthy of the honor. Now go out to the street corners and invite everyone you see. So the servants brought in everyone they could find, good and bad alike, and the banquet hall was filled with guests. All will be called. It is a tragedy that that call won't be answered by all. But as much as this is a tragedy for those that don't answer the call, it's an amazing gift for those that will. God's call results in the movement from death to life. That movement that we saw earlier in the letter. Responding to the call of God brings us from death to life. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15, tells us that that is why he's the one who mediates the new covenant between God and people. So that all who are called can receive the eternal inheritance God has promised them. For Christ died to set them free from the penalty of sins that they had committed under the first covenant. John chapter 5, verse 25 says, And I assure you that the time is coming. Indeed, it is here now when the dead will hear my voice, the voice of the Son of God, and those who listen will live. Again, looking at those that, that hear the call and, and receive the gift of that call, John chapter 10, verse 3, the gatekeeper opens the gate for him and the sheep recognize his voice and come to him. He calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. Peter reminds us of this in, in the second letter that he wrote. He says, by his divine power, God has given us everything we need for, for living a godly life. We have received all of this by coming to know him the one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. Revelation 17. If you need hope today, I would offer you this. Together they will go to war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will defeat them because he is the Lord of all lords and King of all kings. And his called and chosen and faithful ones will be with him. If you need hope today, know that. They will go to war against the Lamb. But the Lamb will defeat them because he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And his called and chosen and faithful will be with him. That is a place where we can put our hope. With this calling recognized, we have a new way of life. When we recognize the call of God, our whole way of life changes. It becomes purposeful. It also becomes peaceful. And it becomes hopeful. The horizon is now far off. And there's reason and motivation. Life is now filled Behind us is the emptiness of life that was lived just to survive. 
1 Peter 2.9 says, But you are not like that, for you are a chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness and into the wonderful light. Paul echoes this in Colossians 3. Let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. What a gift that comes with the calling, peace. Think about about peace in the time that we live in now. Accepting the calling of Christ is an example of how that peace comes. Let peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace and always be thankful. To the Galatian church, Paul wrote, For you have been called to live in freedom. My brothers and sisters, don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. And then we see Peter again in 1 Peter chapter 3. Right? Don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. Instead, pay them back with a blessing. This is what God has called you to do. And he will grant you his blessing. When we step into the calling of God, we have peace. We have hope. We have meaning. So called by God. A reality that we share as much as the reality of adoption. We are his children. We are his children. We are not just chosen. We're called. So what now? Back into our passage for today. Verse 2. Now that we know that we are called, always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. For there is one body and one Spirit, just as you have been called, to the one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, in all, and living through all. However, he has given each one of us a special gift through the generosity of Christ. What I hope you're seeing now is a movement from Paul talking to the church collectively. Now he's talking to the individual members that make up the church. Verse 8, that is why the scriptures say, When he ascended to the heights, he led a crowd of captives and gave gifts to his people. Notice it says he ascended. This clearly means that Christ also descended into our lowly world. And the same one who descended is the one who ascended higher than all of the heavens, so that he might fill the entire universe with himself. Now these are the gifts that Christ gave to the church. Note who he gave the the gifts to. These are the gifts that Christ gave to the church. The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ. This will continue until we 
all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. This could be one of the best representations of the plan of God, just simplified in a few short verses. This is it. Chosen and called. Chosen and called. What he's not saying here, what we will not find in Scripture, what we will not find in this book, is achieved or earned. Chosen and called, not achieved or earned. Because this calling is not earned, neither are the gifts that come to equip us for the calling. And because of that, we can, we can discern ownership and purpose. Our thread of unity is now being revealed more clearly as we consider the perspective that Paul is teaching about spiritual gifts, the tools that we have for accomplishing the mission of God as his chosen and called. What an amazing God that with the calling, he also gives us everything we need to do it. The gifts that equip us to do the stuff that we can't do, and I can own this one as well, the gifts not only that we can't do, but the, stif- the, the stuff that we wouldn't do on our own, gifts that equip us to love like God and to love others as we love ourselves. Without these gifts, without the Spirit, this to me is a near impossible task. I say near impossible because I'm trying to get out of using absolutes because I usually kick hornet's nests when I do that. But I try to think about how easy it would be for me to love God without the help of the Spirit. I don't know if I could. How difficult would it be for me to love others? Including including some of you. Not all of you. (laughs) Some of you. Could I love others without the, the, the intervention, without the gifts of the Spirit? I don't think I could. This one, too, is real, and I know this is real for several of you as well. Could I love myself? Could I love who I am without the help of the Spirit? Absolutely not. Because I know me. I don't see what he sees. The gifts that equip us to love God, love others, and love ourselves come from the Holy Spirit. These are gifts that Paul says Christ gave to the church. While they might be expressed individually in some cases, this perspective on spiritual gifts demonstrates that they come from Jesus first, but they go to the church as the mechanism for the activity of God in this world. The responsibility of the gifted is to equip God's people to do his work, build up the church, build up the body of Christ, chosen, called, and now gifted. That means there's a simple truth embedded here, the truth that God doesn't give things that he wants us to keep. The things that God gives us, he does not want us or expect us to keep. Everything that God gives us, he expects us to give away. Freely give, freely receive. The economy of God works more than just money. This is everything that comes from the throne. We are meant to be a conduit, not a puddle. It flows through us to others. It doesn't stop with us. Everything that God gives us is meant to be given away. 
everything God gives us also trains us. This is a part of that give up your selfish ways in action. This verse that's meant so much to us in Mark 8.34, give up our selfish ways, pick up the cross, and follow Jesus. The gifts that God pours out on his church allows us to do that. Spiritual gifts designed to be released by the beloved of Jesus in concert with other co-beloveds. That's another way of saying we get to do this together as a family. Now this is a simple reality that, that you can see all over. If someone is operating in their giftedness as a lone ranger, it's typically not meant for building up the church. If a gift is being used to build up self, this is not the intention of spiritual gifts. If someone has a standalone ministry, my first indication that this might be usurping power rather than submitting to power is who gets the glory and how are they working in unity? Without unity, we don't have a church. Without church, we don't have the activity of God. Gifts are designed to work in the manner that a body would work. This is why this imagery of the body of Christ is so essential. What good is a beating heart if the lungs aren't bringing oxygen? What good is an elbow without the rest of the arm? That would be really weird. When folks tend to Lone Ranger, it's often demonstrating a submission issue and a woundedness that's probably occurred because they don't trust the co-beloveds to do the stuff that Jesus did with them. There's probably some hurt there, which is another way to say there's an opportunity for healing and unity. Now, let me jump in front of something that, uh, that I know is real. I'm not saying that any group of people calling themselves a church is infallible. So I'm not saying that, that Lone Rangers that, that maybe have, have been hurt by a, a church and have discerned that this actually is not a place I should be, and they leave. I'm not necessarily saying that what they've done is heard something incorrectly or they're operating outside of, of uh, the, the plan of God. There is, we, we see examples of this all over the church, people that call themselves the church, they, they, just by calling yourself the church, it doesn't mean that you're infallible. You don't get to say, we're a church, so you have to do everything that I say. The structure of places that call themselves churches are not always as God designed. When it's about the building up of a person, when it's about the building up of a leader, when it's about getting rather than getting to give, my argument would be that that is not a church. 
selfishness works in this. And unfortunately, many of us have seen the outcome of ambitious people using others to feed that ambition. Even though that place might call themselves a church, that's not a church. Certainly not God's church. It's a temple to pride, ego, ambition, and through the power to deceive, through the power to look like something else, these groups assist the enemy in his mission of lying, killing, and destroying. It takes discernment and accountability to know know the difference. We have to discern in the family, together as a family, and we need accountability. The place of discernment is this. God gives gifts, and he does so with the expectation that they be used. The expectation is that we would step into our role in the body of the Messiah. They're not intended for our own glory. These gifts are not intended for our own selfishness. If we see this, then we can discern right away that this is not of the Lord. Gifts are intended to build the body of the church by using the power he gives to accomplish the mission of evangelism and discipleship. His mission, not my mission. If you are ever on my mission, you need to stop. You need to call me into account. Spiritual gifts are a topic that flow through Scripture. So it's important we understand what Paul's talking about. In the New Testament, Paul and Peter both teach about spiritual gifts in Romans 12, in 1 Corinthians 12, here in Ephesians 4, and also in 1 Peter 4. Spiritual gifts, we can't get away from the truth that this is how God intends for us to accomplish his mission through the gifting that he gives us. Ephesians 4, 11 um, through 12, we just saw it. It says that now these are the gifts that, that Christ gave to the church, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. We saw that the responsibility is to equip God's people. So the spiritual gifts that make up the five-fold ministry, as it's known, are apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. While there are other gifts that we see in, in other chapters, the ones that I cited a moment ago, these are the one, those are meant to help accomplish the five-fold ministry. Our calling is typically to one or a couple of those roles as a spiritual gift for us to operate in our place in the Billings Vineyard. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, those three I refer to as our apes. We're going to get to a point where I will point out how important it is for us to release our apes. During the first century of the church, there was an office of apostle. Here, Paul is talking about the spiritual gift of apostle. They're not the same. The office or the position of apostle was held by the 12 disciples. Matthias uh, took Judas's place as one of the 12 after uh, he uh, accused Jesus. And then we also see Jesus call Paul as an apostle. This is the office of apostle. 
those who held the office of apostle were chosen specifically by Jesus. We see this in in Mark chapter 3. But the transition here from disciple to apostle also demonstrates the nature of the apostolic gift. See, when they were disciples, they were being trained. When they were apostles, they were an authoritative delegate of Jesus. The task for apostles in the office of apostle was setting up the foundation of the church, and they did that. The foundation of the church was laid in the first century. The office of apostle is no longer functioning because those apostles are dead. Those appointed by Jesus fulfilled their appointment. But the spiritual gift of apostle is well and truly alive, and that is what Paul's referencing here. It's alive today as as it was alive in the first century. Examples of this is, uh, we see in in the book of James, we see it in 1 Corinthians and Galatians, we see Barnabas in, in Acts operate with this gift, we see Silas and Timothy operate with this, we see Apollos operate with the gift of apostleship. This group had the gift that, that was not the office, but the gift of apostleship that brought structure to the church as the church was being built. So now, outside of the office, the spiritual gift of apostleship is about building structures that become the church. Those who have the gift of apostle, then, are those that are carrying the gospel message with God's authority to build up the church. We have apostles in our family in the Billings Vineyard today. The gift of apostleship shows itself in the capacity to move with authority and to create new structures. Also, the ability to meet needs and to develop and appoint leadership in these structures. We have those in the Billings Vineyard. Prophecy is similar to apostleship in that there was an office of prophet, mostly in the Old Testament, but some like John the Baptist in the New Testament, we had office holders that were appointed by God to be his mouthpiece. That's how the nation of Israel in many ways was introduced to God through a prophet, through the words of a prophet operating as the mouthpiece of God. The gift of prophecy is the spirit-empowered ability to declare revelation from God. Now, an important fact here is this is not a new revelation of God. With the establishment of Holy Scripture, as it relates to the gift of prophecy, these declarations are about revealing truth that we find in Scripture. In in 2 Peter, Peter also links prophecy and teaching together because of this, because of this revealing truth. And so what we see with the gift of prophecy, that it is a forth-telling rather than a foretelling, and certainly not a fortune-telling. Now, there are going to be future pieces to prophecy. There's going to be part, part of this is talking about the future, but not telling of the future that falls outside of the truth that we see in the canon of Scripture. We're given several warnings about false prophets. It leads me to a litmus test when it comes to prophetic words that we might hear. The first question that we have to ask 
is, is the prophecy that we've heard consistent with Scripture? If it isn't consistent with Scripture, it's not from the Lord. That's an easy one. Another one is, can it be tested in community? What I mean by that is group discernment. Can we come together and pray and agree that we believe that this is a word from the Lord? Think about how easy it is to manipulate, to to usurp power, if I'm the only one that can hear from the Lord and I tell you what he has to say. Please don't come back if I do that. Call somebody. Another thing about prophecy is, did it happen? If it didn't happen, it wasn't from the Lord. The other question I'd ask about the prophet is, is is this prophet a lone ranger? Are they in an accountable relationship within a body of Christ? Do they work with others that are gifted? Are they giving prophecies that are more about them as the prophet than about bringing somebody to being equipped and to realize the love of Jesus? These questions help us to to discern the prophetic. And it's needed discernment because Jesus has gifted the vineyard with prophets. We have prophets in our church and we need them. And our prophets need our accountability. Evangelism as a spiritual gift shows itself in the capacity to challenge people publicly and privately to receive the gospel of salvation in Christ and to see them respond by taking the initial steps into Christian discipleship. This is a spiritual gift. Now, the danger here is to think, oh, good, I'm not good at that, so I don't have the gift, so I don't have to do it. Doesn't work that way. We are all tasked to share the gospel, but there are some that have a gifting for it. And you might experience, I I was brought into the church by way of somebody gifted with evangelism. It manifests in the ability to build relationships and point people to Jesus. Jesus has gifted the vineyard with evangelists. Now think about this, evangelists and prophets and, and apostles working together. Instead of working separately, when they work together as a body, when we release the apes, when the Billings Vineyard apes are released, we have people that that are sharing, that are revealing truth in our culture. They're building structures to experience that, that truth, and they're telling people about Jesus and bringing them to Jesus. That's pretty dang cool. And they don't have to do it alone because the apes get to work together. I love our apes. Two more gifts in the fivefold ministry. One, the gift of pastoring. It shows itself in the capacity to exercise concern and care for members of a group so to, as to encourage them in their growth in Christ. It involves modeling maturity, protecting from error, and teaching biblical truth. Jesus has gifted the vineyard with a lot of pastors in varying degrees of process in terms of modeling maturity. It's a little bit of a joke that fell flat. (laughs) The gift of teaching shows itself in the ability to instruct, explain, or expose biblical truth in a way that causes believers to understand what is written in this book. And so when we have the apes released in the city, 
wreaking havoc and bringing people back. And we have the pastors and the teachers taking all of the collection, the harvest of the apes, and training them and teaching them how to do the stuff that Jesus did. What we have is a functioning church. That is the five-fold ministry. It's active here. It is real in this time. And so this is my charge for all of us today. We have to discover our giftedness. And when we discover our giftedness, we do two things. We are discipled in our giftedness. And then we are released to operate in our gift with co-beloveds. We release the apes. And we set the pastors and the teachers to their task. We get ready to train, love, and equip the folks that, that the apes collect. We train each other. And when we train each other, and when we work together, it looks like this. Ephesians 4, 14 through 16. Then we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like truth. Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly, and each part does its own special work. It helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. As we discover our giftedness, we have to keep in mind the foundation. We are the beloved of the creator of the world. To fulfill the mission of the creator, to reconcile creation to himself, we step into his mission by being the body of the Messiah. It begins with Mark 8:34, giving up our selfish ways, picking up our cross, and following the path of Jesus laid. We follow as children of God, chosen, called, gifted, and released. We don't identify with the gift. We identify with the gifter. Together, as a gifted family, we're trained, equipped, and released for the mission of God. Amen.